Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Glad to have you with us uh, today and whenever you might be listening to this podcast. Last week, we started talking about, it started our examination of the Pope's latest motu proprio, Traditionis Custodes, the Guardians of Tradition. And that uh, rather ironic title, considering that this is a, uh, a motu proprio that is... Um, to be candid, attacking the traditional Latin Mass, I asked the age-old question, ipsos es custodiet es custodes, who will guard the guardians? And uh, we're going to continue our examination of the motu proprio itself because uh, our examination was cut short by time last week. Also, we're going to uh, uh, look at the survey that was sent to the bishops of the world upon which Traditionis custodis is uh, presumably predicated. Uh, the uh, the idea that uh, Francis talked to the bishops of the world and they concluded uh, collegially that what the traditional mass needs to be stamped out. We're gonna, last week I, I mentioned that um, we didn't know what were the questions in that questionnaire or how many bishops uh, received it or how many responded or what the responses were. Well, one of those mysteries has been solved. I uh, Crux Magazine online uh, just the other day published the questions of the questionnaire. So we're going to take a look at that and some other things as well. But to begin, we're going to look, as always, with the readings from the Extraordinary Form of the Mass, the traditional Latin Mass of uh, this past Sunday, which was the ninth Sunday after Pentecost, beginning with the Epistle of St. Paul, uh, first Epistle of St. Paul to the Corinthians, Chapter 10, verses 6 through 13. Brethren, we should not covet evil things as they also coveted. Neither become ye idolaters as some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed fornication, and there fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them tempted and perished by the serpents. Neither do you murmur, as some of them murmured, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them in figure, and they are written for our correction, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, he that thinketh himself to stand, let him take heed, lest he fall. Let no temptation take hold on you, but such as is human. And God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will also make but will make also with temptation issue that you may be able to bear it. All right, St. Paul is telling the Corinthians about all the things that uh, happened to the Jews in the Old Testament, particularly during the time of the Exodus and uh, the Babylonian captivity, and is saying, don't do the things that they did, because, you know, you are now uh, under Christ. But he says, he that thinketh himself to stand. So if you think you're, you're doing good spiritually, take heed lest you fall. Right? He's warning them against the temptation to sin because we are still today tempted to all of the things that the Jews were tempted to in the days of the Old Covenant. Now, I, I have to say that the, uh, this the last verse is one of the most consoling verses in the New Testament where St. Paul says, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond your strength. Now, that means that whatever the temptation, whatever temptation comes your way, God is going to give you the grace necessary to resist that temptation. And it's important to realize that temptation isn't sin. 
But temptation should be resisted at once because the point where temptation gives way to sin might be sooner than you think. It is entirely possible to sin by thought and desire alone. All right? It is impossible to sin without committing an external sinful act. If we desire evil and unlawful things, or if when, when we are tempted, uh, instead of resisting, we dwell upon that sin with pleasure, then we've actually sinned by thought. So we are warned by our Lord himself in Matthew 4, uh, verse 7. He said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And St. Paul says the same in, in 1 Corinthians 10. What does that mean? Well, to tempt God is the sin of presumption. Uh, to take his love and his mercy for granted. To presumptuously expect signs of his, uh, his omnipotence and, as they used to say, his benignity, which is his kindness and tolerance, um, his providence, his justice. Uh, um, it would be a sin, therefore, <clears throat> to desire that matters of faith should be confirmed by new miracles. Like, God, if you want me to believe in this, you know, prove it right now. Show me, show me a miracle. Uh, number two, to expose ourselves unnecessarily to danger of body or soul, expecting God to deliver us. Right? So failing to avoid near or unnecessary occasions of sin. And then uh, also in, in, under that, I guess you would think of the person who um, says, you know, presumptuously, um, oh, I'm t- tempted to do this sin. I know it's a sin, but you know what? I'll just go to confession. Right? That's presumption. To, to commit a sin thinking, oh, well, God will just forgive me for it later is presumptuous. And number three, to reject the ordinary and natural means of deliverance in sickness or other peril, trusting in God's immediate assistance. Now, what does that mean? It's like, oh, there was an old joke <clears throat> about the guy who uh, his uh, boat sinks. He's out on the lake and his boat sinks. And he's there treading water and he prays to God to deliver him. And uh, somebody comes by in a rowboat and, and says, hey, hop in. And he says, no, no, that's okay. God's going to deliver me. And then a little while later, a, a fisherman comes by in a rubber raft and, and says, hey, hop in, fella. I think there's room enough to, for both of us. And he says, no, no, God's going to deliver me. I have faith. And number three, uh, or a guy in a jet ski comes by, says, hey, grab a hold. I'll tow you to shore. He says, no, no, God's going to deliver me. Well, then, of course, the fellow drowns. And then he's before the judgment seat of God, and he says, you know, God, why didn't you deliver me? And God's like, well, I sent you a rowboat (laughs) and a lifeboat and a jet ski. And that's the thing. We have to, you know, you don't reject the ordinary and natural means of deliverance, you know, whether you're sick or you're in some other bad situation, because you think God is going to help you in some extraordinary way. All right, to tempt God, to presume on his mercy, is a sin. And it was Jesus uh, himself in Matthew 16, verse 4, who said, It is a wicked and adulterous generation that seeketh after a sign. All right, and now the continuation of the Holy Gospel according to Luke. This is from Luke 19, verses 41 through 47. At that time, Jesus drew near Jerusalem, seeing the city he wept over it, saying, If thou also hadst known, and that in this thy day, the things that are to thy peace, but now they are hidden from thy eyes. For the days shall come upon thee, and thy enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and straighten thee on every side, and beat thee flat to the ground. 
and thy children who are in thee, and they shall not leave in thee a stone upon a stone, because thou hast not known the time of thy visitation. And entering into the temple, he began to cast out them that sold therein, and them that bought, saying to them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So our, our Savior wept over the city of Jerusalem because it did not know or profit by its time of visitation. And on the contrary, through their impenitence, they were rushing headlong for their destruction. And, and what does Jesus mean by the time of visitation? Well, he's referring to that period when God sent, sent you know, one prophet after another after another to the Jews who, you know, they derided and calumniated and then stoned and put to death, as our Lloyd points out in, in Matthew 23. Uh, but the time of their visitation especially was that time of the ministry of Christ, who so often proclaimed his, his doctrine and pointed out and demonstrated by the greatest of miracles that he was, in fact, the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And yet this hardened and impenitent city of Jerusalem uh, despised him. And he knew, of course, uh, at this time that they were presently going to put him to death on the cross. And, and this Sunday at the traditional Mass, it struck me that although, you know, the invincible, invincibly ignorant might be saved without baptism, that ignorance isn't some kind of um, eighth sacrament. Because the key word is invincible. You know, to be invincibly ignorant means not only that one does not know the gospel, but that because of circumstances beyond their control, they cannot know the gospel. And that, you know, and, and, but everyone has the right, or the duty rather, to, to discover the truths of salvation and try and save their soul. God doesn't hide the truths of salvation from anybody. And, and in fact, good information about Catholicism is more readily available today than at any time in history. You know, but you've got the Catholic Bible and the, and the various catechisms and the Catholic Encyclopedia. That stuff's all online uh, for free. The, the point is that the worldly are so blinded by the world and the sinful are so blinded by their sins that divine inspiration fails to move them to do penance and to turn their lives around. And... In Luke's gospel here, at the end of it, he mentions that uh, he mentions the cleansing of the temple. And you remember, this is where Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers, and he, and he braided a whip of cords and drove the animals and, and those who bought and sold out of the temple. My father's house is, is a house of prayer. You've made it into a den of thieves. And, you know, it's... Well, first off, the text shows us how severely God is going to uh, deal with those who forget where they are when they go to church, who forget that Christ is present uh, there in the tabernacle, people who, who, who laugh and amuse themselves and cherish sinful thoughts, scandalize others by the way they dress or behave. And, and again, in the Scripture, we see that our Lord often has harsh words for the scribes and Pharisees uh, and that attest to the fact that he just hates hypocrisy. But it's well to remember that the only time in Scripture... The only thing that ever made him angry enough to get physical was liturgical abuse. And on that thought, we are going to take a quick break and come back to talk more about Traditiones Custodes and uh, our love for the liturgy. That and more when we come back right after this. Stay with us on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. All right. 
Welcome back to round number two here on No Nonsense Catholic. Great to have you along with us. Last week we started talking and examining, talking about and examining Traditionis Custodes, the new motu proprio from Pope Francis. And since we didn't quite finish, uh, I want to do that today. And uh, there are eight articles uh, in the eight or nine articles. Let me see here. In the motu proprio. And uh, we went over the first... Article 8, there are eight articles. And uh, we went over the first few just by way of review. Article 1 is the liturgical books promulgated by St. Paul VI and St. John Paul II in conformity with the decrees of Vatican Council II are the unique expression of the Lex Arandi of the Roman Rite. Now, again, as I pointed out, um, he's saying that the Novus Ordo is the exclusive law of prayer for the Roman Church. This is... Um, a perfect example uh, of the hermeneutic of rupture. Uh, you know, it's a smoking gun that Pope Francis believes that Vatican II was a rupture with the Church's tradition, that the Church used to believe something, one thing, and now we believe something else. All right, number two, it belongs to the diocesan bishop as moderator, promoter, and guardian of the whole liturgical life of the particular Church entrusted to him to regulate the liturgical celebrations of his diocese. Therefore, it is his exclusive competence to authorize the use of the 1962 Roman Missal in his diocese according to the guidelines of the Apostolic See. So in contradiction to uh, Pope Benedict's teaching that every priest has a right to say the traditional Latin Mass, uh, Pope Francis says, no, it's the bishop's decision, and of course not really his decision, but only under the guidance of Rome. And then Article <clears throat> 3 um, has several... Uh, kind of points, right? Several provisos. So Article 3 is the bishop of the diocese in which until now there exist one or more groups that celebrate according to the Missal uh, antecedent to the reform of 1970. Okay, sorry, it's a mouthful. In other words, so any place the, where the traditional Latin Mass is being licitly celebrated, uh, number one is to determine that these groups do not deny the validity and legitimacy of the liturgical reform dictated by Vatican Council II and the Magisterium of the Supreme Pontiff. Uh, I had a lot to say about that last week. For now, let's just suffice to say, let the struggle sessions begin. Uh, number two, designate one or more locations where the faithful adherents of these groups may gather for the Eucharistic celebration, not, however, in parochial churches and without the erection of new personal parishes. So, the new pl no new places of worship for the only sector of the church that's actually growing instead of shrinking, uh, which lets you know what they're actually afraid of, and, um, you know, that this tradition, uh, tradition is going to eventually supersede the novelty of the last 60 years. So, no new places, and in fact, you can't even celebrate it in the places that you used to. Uh, number three, establish a designated location the days on which Eucharistic celebrations are permitted using the Missal of 62, in these celebrations, readings are proclaimed in the vernacular language using translation of sacred scripture approved for liturgical use by the respective Episcopal conferences. So once again, Catholics faithful to tradition uh, need to understand it's up to the bishop not only where, but when and if you get to assist at the Holy Mass, in, in the traditional Mass. And by the way, we're going to read the readings in the approved translation, which for the Diocese of the United States is exclusively the New American Bible. Number four, and, this is, and these are the provisions under Article 3, uh, to appoint a priest, and now this is, this is picking up where we left off, uh, appoint a priest as delegate of the bishop entrusted with these celebrations with the past, and with the pastoral care of these groups of the faithful. 
This priest should be suited for this responsibility, skilled in the use of the Missale Romanum antecedent to the reform of 1970, possess a knowledge of Latin language sufficient for a thorough comprehension of the rubrics and liturgical texts, and be animated by a lively pastoral charity and by a sense of ecclesial communion. This priest should have at heart not only the correct celebration of the liturgy, but also the pastoral and spiritual care of the faithful. So all the tragedies in the diocese get the one priest and a unicorn of a priest who's fully on board with the Novus Ordo and is also at the same time uh, competent in the old rite, a Latin scholar, uh, and who can somehow be personally responsible for the pastoral care of all the Catholics attached to tradition in an entire diocese. I, I just, you know, imagine if this was applied, this norm was applied to any other community in the church. Say, for example, the Novus Ordo in Spanish. Can you imagine the outcry? And also this last line, the priest should have at heart not only the correct celebration of the liturgy, but also the pastoral and spiritual care of the faithful. See, that's very telling because it exposes the, the false dichotomy that's at the heart of this document, and namely that the correct celebration of the liturgy is somehow opposed to the pastoral and spiritual care of the faithful. You know, they go hand in hand. I mean, they're actually deeply connected. If you can break it down to the most basic level, uh, worship is about the love of God, and and pastoral care is about the love of neighbor. In this case, the, the pastor's love for his flock. And remember, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. But you can't have the secondary without the primary. The worship of God comes first. And Holy Mass is for the worship of God, not for the celebration of ourselves. And the traditional Latin Mass makes that very clear, and the Novus Ordo Misae does not. Okay, Article 3, Number 5, to proceed suitably, this is the duty of the bishop, to proceed suitably to verify that parishes canonically erected for the benefit of these faithful, that's the traditional Catholics, are effective for their spiritual growth and determine whether or not to retain them. So, and of course he means the parishes already canonically erected for the benefit of these faithful because he's, he's forbidden any new such parishes and he's forbidden the celebration in, in the regular parish churches. Um, I say rather he's forbidden any new such uh, uh, parishes that are canonically erected just for this purpose. Um, so, but the problem is, of course, that by far the most traditional Latin masses in this country are celebrated at the local Novus Ordo Church, not in some special parish. Most dioceses don't have a special parish. And again, he's already forbidden any more such parishes. And so he says, with no other recourse available to those who assist at the Mass of their fathers, every bishop for himself has to decide if the traditional Mass is really good for them or not. And, and allow or deny it on that basis. And uh, number six, just in case you forgot, the bishop is to take care not to, authorize, not to authorize the establishment of any new groups. Right? So we have, we have priestly societies that are, are meant for this, but, but no more. And now Article 4, priests ordained after the publication of the present motu proprio, so from now on, those who wish to celebrate using the Missale Romanum of 1962 should submit a formal request to the diocesan bishop, who shall then consult the apostolic see before granting this authorization. Obviously, this applies to 
Novus Ordo seminarians, right? If you're uh, in a seminary and you intend to become a diocesan priest, uh, if once you're ordained, you want to say the 62 Missal, you got to go to the bishop, and he will grant you permission if Rome says it's okay for him to grant you permission. And, uh, and you know, regarding that Novus Ordo uh, seminarian, um, you know, he like I say, he can go to his bishop, but he can't necessarily get an answer. Uh, but what about the priests that are already in formation right now who are in seminaries who are um, preparing to say the traditional mass, right, who are in those groups? Well, this is Article 5. Priests who already celebrate according to the Missalia Romano 1962 should request uh, from the diocesan bishop the authorization to continue to enjoy this faculty. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I was going to ask, what about the, uh, what about the um, uh, seminarian who's preparing to to uh, celebrate the traditional Mass, right? Does he need special permission from the local ordinary before he can celebrate the Mass for which he was educated? Actually, I think it's answered in a later article. We'll get to that in a minute. So um, the priests were already celebrating according to the Missali Romanum, right? So these are diocesan priests who, who say the extraordinary form for their parishioners at the regular parish. Um, he can't keep saying it without the bishop's okay, and the bishop can't give him the okay um, you know, without, uh, apparently without talking to the uh, Holy See. Article 6, Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life, erected by the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Dei, which was what was the commission that was set up by John Paul II in order to create groups specifically for those who want the traditional Mass. Um, he says those those groups, so Fraternity of St. Peter and Pseudo Christ the King, etc., uh, now fall under the competence of the Congregation for Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies for Apostolic Life. Um, and this is a change because previously the Ecclesia Dei communities were um, directly answerable to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And now they're just going to be lumped into that general, uh, um, under the general, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're going to be underneath the, the Congregation for uh, uh, Institute of Consecrated Life. Uh, okay, so Article 8, the last one, previous norms, instructions, permissions, and customs that do not conform to the provisions of the present modu proprio are abrogated. So in other words, he's saying, I know that Benedict XVI said that the traditional last was never abrogated. Well, now it is. And, uh, there, and there it is. There, there it is to the, uh, uh, in its entirety. Now, he also, uh, the Pope put out a letter to the bishops kind of explaining how he expected them to implement these things and sort of why he did it and so on. And, uh, and we'll look at that going forward. But um, no doubt you have heard the expression, power tends to corrupt, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. Those were the words of Lord Acton. And Acton was a 19th century English aristocrat. He was an historian and he was also a Catholic. And I suspect that he was, uh, in context, he was talking about um, absolute monarchy, which was an ancient and pagan principle, which only appeared in, in Christendom, raised its ugly head during the Renaissance, uh, and was then, um, you know, Machiavelli et al. And, and that then kind of became one of the issues that uh, prompted the egalitarian revolutions of the 18th and 19th century. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, it's the thing. See, 
Catholic monarchs, the, the, the kings and queens of the Middle Ages, were not absolute monarchs, and neither is the Pope. Um, the Pope is not an absolute monarch. He's bound by tradition and custom, and he is the servant of the deposit of faith and not its master, and certainly not its author. Benedict XVI said this about the power of the papacy, and I quote, The power that Christ conferred upon Peter and his successors is, in an absolute sense, a mandate to serve. The power of teaching in the church involves a commitment to the service of obedience to the faith. The Pope is not an absolute monarch whose thoughts and desires are law. On the contrary, the Pope's ministry is a guarantee of obedience to Christ and to his word. He, that is the Pope, must not proclaim his own ideas, but rather constantly bind himself and the Church to the obedience to obedience to God's word in the face of every attempt to adapt it or water it down and every form of opportunism. Now we're going to talk about that when we come back. Also going to take a look at the survey that the bishops got, some of them, and what those questions are and, and what it might mean. All that and more uh, when we return with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No-Nonsense Catholic. Um, Talking about Traditionis Custodes, the... uh, Pope's motto proprio, and I, you know, I, I don't like to put it in these terms, but there's no other way to say it, um, attacking or trying, uh, attempting to prohibit the free celebration of the traditional Latin Mass. And I mentioned last week <clears throat> that uh, this was uh, based, uh, allegedly, on responses of a survey of the world's bishops. And last week I said we didn't know what the questions were, and we didn't know who, how many bishops responded or what their responses were. But we do now have the answer to one of those mysteries. Uh, The Crux magazine website published the survey questions uh, in an article titled The Nine Questions That Sealed the Fate of the Latin Mass. So see, they've got it in the past tense. They've already buried the Latin Mass for us. Last Friday, it says, Pope Francis rolled back what some considered his predecessor's olive branch to traditionalist Catholics by severely restricting celebration of the old Latin Mass. The move essentially reversed a liberalization of the older rite decreed by Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI in 2007. Now, of course, we haven't even gotten to the survey yet, and this is already misleading, because the fate of the Latin Mass has hardly been sealed, as we can see by the reaction to the motu proprio of many good bishops around the world. Also, and I can't, you know, well, well for, for one thing, I'm still uh, assisting at the traditional Latin Mass at my own parish church, um, and it doesn't look like that's going to change anytime soon. So, you know, thanks be to God. Uh, but the other thing, and I can't say this often enough, and I'm going to keep repeating it, because in crazy times, sane men have to repeat the obvious. Uh, the fact is that Samorum Pontificum, the motu proprio of Benedict XVI, did not give permission to celebrate the old rite, which permission is now being rescinded. Benedict XVI pointed out that every priest of the Roman Catholic Church has the right to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass and needs no permission from the Pope or, or, or his bishop. In fact, he said, and I quote, what earlier generations held as sacred, and this is in the letter that accompanied uh, the motu proprio, 
What earlier generations held as sacred remains sacred and great for us too, and it cannot be all of a sudden entirely forbidden or even considered harmful. It behooves all of us to preserve the riches which have developed in the church's faith and prayer and to give them their proper place. Not ought to, not should not, but cannot. It cannot be harmful and it cannot be suppressed. Ergo, not only was the traditional Latin Mass not abrogated by the imposition of the Novus Ordo, as Benedict XVI authoritatively declared, but as per St. Pius V's Quo Primum, it cannot be abrogated. And and we're seeing um, that in the reaction to many bishops to this motu proprio. Uh, The article continues, when announcing their decisions, both popes said they'd been made hoping to promote unity in the church, with Francis arguing that Benedict's reform had become a source of division and had been exploited by Catholics who dispute the Second Vatican Council. In Francis's case, he also said the decision was based on a wide consultation with the world's bishops. And so here's kind of some more editorializing here. You see, Pope Francis's decision was based on a wide consultation with the world's bishop, suggesting that, that Francis represents this Episcopal consensus, whereas Benedict XVI acted you know, uniratic, unilaterally. He's the rogue pope trying to push his opinion on everybody, where Pope Francis is just representing the mainstream. Um, but, but what con- constituted his quote-unquote wide consultation? Uh, the article continues, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith sent a questionnaire at the Pope's request to bishops' conferences last year. Crux obtained a copy of the survey titled Consultation of Bishops on the Application of the Motu Proprio Samorum Pontificum. Now, the Crux people talked to 20 different bishops around the world and found that um, what actually happened is that each of the conferences received the questionnaire, and then they decided what to do with it. In some countries, like Chile, which has, uh, and the bishops there have a, a long-standing animus against the uh, traditional Mass, it says the archbishops received it, but ordinary bishops didn't. Uh, in neighboring Argentina, every bishop received it, but many didn't answer because, and I'm quoting here, there's no significant presence of priests and faithful who favor the Tridentine Mass in their area. Now, to be fair, I think the, you know they failed to mention that while there is a significant presence of the SSPX and no shortage of Catholics who desire the old rite, uh, the reason there's no significant presence uh, uh, of the traditional Latin Mass in Argentina in, in diocesan churches you know, has to do with the animus of the bishops there uh, and, and, not, uh, you know, uh, and their, their refusal to implement some more in pontificum, including the erstwhile Bishop of, Argent- or bishop of Buenos Aires, Jorge Bergoglio. Uh, it continues, in the United States, the questionnaire was reportedly sent to every bishop, though at least one, quote, didn't recall receiving it, and if he did, he said he did not respond. In Australia, every diocese received it, but in Europe and Africa, its distribution seems to have been even more uneven. To date, the Vatican has not revealed how many bishops around the world actually received the survey, and of that number, how many chose to respond, or for that matter, how they responded. So here's the question. So here's what the, the questionnaire the bishops got, those who got it. Number one, what's the situation in your diocese with respect to the extraordinary form of the Roman rite? Well, that's, you know, that question, what, that's kind of open-ended. What are they asking? Are they asking, are there any, or how many there are, or do people like it, or do you not like it? Uh, do you not like the people who assist at it, right? And various responses, of course, would need to be analyzed and categorized in order to you know, draw any kind of conclusion or, or uh, reach 
some consensus. Number two, if the extraordinary form is practiced in your diocese, does it respond to a true pastoral need or is it being promoted by a single priest? Right, and this begs the question. The extraordinary form is not a privilege, it's a right. And it can hardly be assumed that the traditional Latin mass is being foisted on the faithful anywhere. You know, no Catholic is going to go to all the trouble to attend the traditional Latin mass if they didn't want to. You know, or does this question imply that if there's only one priest who has the grace and courage to, to respond to the people's desire and pray according to the church's tradition, uh, you know, is, is such really a pastoral need or is such pastoral need somehow illegitimate? You know, their real pastoral needs are, are if, you know, don't include wanting the old mass. Um, and it also could be a, a smokescreen for bishops who misuse their power and only allow one traditional mass, right? And then they can turn around and say, well, how bad can people want it if they only have one priest, even though they're only allowing the one priest? And then again, Samorum Pontificum, Benedict's motu proprio, isn't predicated on any presumption of pastoral need, but the absolute right of the priest, the Roman Catholic priest, to say this Mass, and the right of the faithful to assist. In other words, if only one priest in the diocese is celebrating the traditional Latin Mass and nobody assists, he still has a right to celebrate it. And if he's a pastor, or he has his pastor's permission to celebrate it in public. Number three, in your opinion, are there positive or negative aspects of the use of the extraordinary form? Well, and again, I've, I've traveled all over the Anglophone world, and in every parish where both forms are celebrated, um, both have benefited, in my experience. Uh, attendance is better uh, at the Novus Ordo. The Novus Ordo Mass is more faithfully celebrated. And the, uh, the traditional Mass, if you're worried about active participation, you know, you, when you go into those Masses and everybody is, is responding in Latin along with the altar servers, you can't really, you know, make that argument. This is, in fact, precisely the quote-unquote mutual enrichment of the two forms that were foreseen by Benedict XVI. Number four, are the norms and conditions established by Samorum Pontificum being respected? So, well, which norms and conditions are those? Here's a couple. Every Roman Catholic priest has the right to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass in private, and the faithful who desire it may attend private Masses. The question is, Bishop, do you respect that right? Uh, every pastor can have the public celebration of the traditional mass at his parish without the permission of the bishop and without regard to the supposed pastoral need of his congregation and, frankly, whether anybody has asked for it or not and whether it's well attended or not. The question is, do the bishops respect the norms and conditions? Number five, does it occur to you in your diocese the ordinary form has adopted elements of the extraordinary form? <gasps> Heaven forfend! You know, what can this allude to? Are they doing stuff at the Novus Order that, that's from the extraordinary form? Is, is the traditional mass giving the new mass its cooties? You know, <laughs> are they saying some of the parts of the Novus Order in Latin? Well, of course, that's actually the norm, assumed by the general instruction of the Roman Missal. Um, are Novus Order priests celebrating ad orientum? Again, the Missal assumes that they are. See, I can't, you know, are they using incense or, or, or are they singing the... You know, they, they have a scholar that's singing the parts of the Mass. You know, how could this be a danger? I can't conceive of any feature of the traditional Mass that's not already allowed or, in fact, the actual norm of the Novus Ordo Missae, which, you know, it's unfortunately observed more in the breach uh, 
but but it's once again I, I consider that to be a, a misleading question. And number six here for the celebration of the mass, do you use the missal promulgated by Pope John twenty third and twenty six? You know there are some bishops that actually celebrate the the, the mass according to the sixty two missal. They're certainly a minority, but you know what? I'd like to know who they are, so at least I could pray for them. <laughs> you know, and I know I, Bishop Tobin out in New Jersey's one, and there are others, but uh, you know. Clearly, a majority of the world's bishops are going to say no to that. Number seven, besides the celebration of the Mass in the extraordinary form, are there other, other celebrations? For example, baptism, confirmation, marriage, penance, unction of the sick, ordination, divine office, Easter triduum, funeral rites, according to the liturgical books prior to Vatican Council II. Again, this is revealed by Samorum Pontificum as being something to which Catholics are entitled, not for which they need special permission. He already said, Benedict XVI uh, said that, uh, the, that the sacraments and the divine office even in the old rite are, in fact, you know, something that can be used. Number eight, has the motu proprio Samorum Pontificum had an influence on the life of seminaries, the seminary of the diocese and other formation houses? Oh, yes. Does the, having the traditional mass mean more of those rigid seminarians all caught up with doctrine and prayer and tradition and other unpastoral stuff like that? Are we producing a bunch of cassock-wearing, Latin-praying priests who aren't on board with the new church of what's happening now? I mean, it can tell you that, that, that tells you everything you need to know, pretty much. One more question and then some uh, analysis. When we return, right here on No Nonsense Catholic, a Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stick with us, and we will be right back after these messages. Okay, finishing up now with the final question on the survey that was given to the world's bishops, although a good many of them didn't receive it, and we have no idea how many of them answered it or what their answers might have been. But the final question was this. Thirteen years after the motu proprio Samorum Pontificum, what is your advice about the extraordinary form of the Roman Rite? Again, open-ended question and an ambiguous question. What do you mean? What's your advice about the extraordinary form? You know, it ought to be faithfully observed. <laughs> I don't know. The point is, it's a bookend to the, to the opening question. And again, would, you know, presumably prompt a, a variety of, of answers. And, and those answers would need careful analysis to be of any value, right? Surveys are sociological, uh, this motu proprio is ideological. And how does he arrive at those ideological answers to this sociological document? We don't know because they, they won't tell us. But, uh, you know, Tradicionis uh, Custodes suggests that this survey of the World Episcopate, which was sent only last year, has weighed and measured and found wanting the use of the traditional Latin Mass, um, you know, which I cannot repeat often enough, is the only... Uh, one might say the unique source <laughs> of true renewal in the church today. It's the only sector of the church that's not entirely moribund. It's the only sector uh, of the church that's producing significant priestly and religious vocations. It's the only sector that's growing rather than shrinking. So maybe it would have been better to ask the, the bishops a few 
other questions. Maybe, maybe why is it that a majority of Catholics in their diocese never darken the door of a church? What can we do about that? Um, why is it the majority of your people that actually do go to church with some regularity don't believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist? What can you do about that? Uh, why is it the majority of those who regularly assist at Mass rarely, if ever, go to confession, even though they always go to communion when they, re, re, when they attend Mass, even if they regularly miss Mass by their own fault? You know, there's, and that's the tip of the iceberg. There are a lot of uh, liturgical questions that really need to be looked at and answered in regard to the ordinary form, to the, to the typical celebration of the new Mass that are essentially the, uh, the elephant in the room. Um, Pope Francis gives one sentence in his letter to the bishops. He says, I too, like Pope Benedict, I too am dismayed uh, about liturgical abuse. Yeah, okay, it's been 60 years. What have you done about it? And that's another thing with these, with these post-conciliar documents. <sighs> post-conciliar documents tend not to have any teeth even if they're not completely ambiguous, even if they say something, what's the penalty for, for, for not following this? You know, it doesn't say. It's rather like Vatican II. It, you know, it's like I, I've often maintained that no Catholic on the earth is obliged to do, think, or, or say anything that he wasn't obliged to do, think, or say before Vatican II because the teaching of the church hasn't changed. And if somebody wants to show me where, where I'm wrong, all you have to do is produce the, the, you know, the canons and decrees and the list of anathemas. Well, and there simply aren't any. All right. Um, final question that I would ask the bishops is, uh, you know, since traditional Catholicism is the only kind of Catholicism that's growing, and every measurable aspect of the Novus Ordo renewal is in free fall and has been for decades— what does that say about the changes that were made after Vatican II? Not, not the council itself, although they were typically made in the name of Vatican II, but the changes that have been made since. How long should the church follow a course that has produced more non-practicing Catholics than any persecution by her enemies in 2,000 years? Let's consider some earlier surveys, shall we? Uh, back in 1967, there was a survey, uh, it was actually two surveys, one with four questions and another with eight questions, so 12 altogether, that were submitted to these bishops. And we don't have a time for detailed analysis here, but suffice it to say that the two-thirds majorities were required to claim consensus on these various uh, topics. And it's noteworthy that in the results of those, that half of them didn't require, or didn't meet the two-thirds majority requirement. And uh, the bishops that attended the first public celebration of the revised new order in the Sistine Chapel. Uh, they were asked to vote on the new liturgy. And only 71 of the 176 bishops of that synod voted placet, which means approved. 105 didn't approve or had reservations. So a two-thirds majority would have been 116 yes votes. votes. They only got 71. But it didn't stop Paul VI from imposing the Novus Ordo Missae on the whole church. Uh, more recently, in the 1970s, after the new Mass became the law of the land, some bishops wanted to introduce communion in the hand. And so the Vatican sent out a survey with three questions. Number one, does it seem that the proposal should be accepted by which, besides the traditional mode, the right of receiving Holy Communion in the hand would be permitted? 
Of the bishops who responded, 567 of them said yes. Yes, communion in the hand would be okay. 1,233 said no. 115 said, I've got reservations. Number two, should experiments with the new rite of receiving communion in the hand first take place in small communities with the assent of the local ordinary? 751, significant number of bishops said yes. 1,215 said no. Um, Number three, the third and final question, do you think the faithful, after a well-planned catechetical preparation, would accept this new rite willingly? 835 bishops said yes, 1,185 bishops said no. The conclusion, now this is the, the conclusion of the survey, I'm quoting. From the responses received, it is thus clear that by far the greater number of bishops feel that the present discipline should not be changed at all. Indeed, that if it were changed, this would be offensive to the sensibilities and spiritual appreciation of these bishops and of most of the faithful. Um, and so uh, Paul VI says, after he had considered the observations and the counsel of those whom the Holy Spirit has placed as bishops to rule, uh, to rule the churches, in view of the seriousness of the matter and the importance of the arguments proposed, the Supreme Pontiff has judged that the long-received manner of ministering Holy Communion to the faithful should not be changed. But we know how this all turned out, didn't we? Even though a majority of bishops uh, voted against the uh, new Mass, as opposed to those who voted for it, um, it became the law of the land anyway. Even though a majority of the world's bishops voted against communion in the hand, and the Pope himself, you know, his little dicastery here, whoever did this survey, says that the Supreme Pontiff has judged that uh, communion in the hand is a no-go. And yet they, you know, it's, you've got that small vocal minority, and they kept pushing, and they kept pushing, and what happened? Communion in the hand finally got placed in the hands of the local bishops, which means, you know, effectively, and in, in those who influenced the local bishops. And that's the thing. Did the faithful want it? I, this is only anecdotal. I don't have survey results that I can quote here, um, even though the survey here does not support doing it. They did it anyway. But it wasn't, you know, um, introduced as some kind of option. Well, you know, the norm in the church is still to receive kneeling and on the tongue, but if you really, really want to, you can receive standing and on the hand. No, that's not, that's not how it happened. My wife was in grade school at the time. She went to school one day and sister said, attention, children, the Pope says from now on you have to receive communion standing and take it in your hands. And they were shocked by this and scandalized as well they should be. And my wife, a little girl, goes home to her mom and says, they want us to do this now. They say we have to. And she said, oh, I don't think so. And off she goes to see the, the priest who gives her the same line. It's the Pope's will that we must do this from now on. And that's, that's just a lie. That was not true at all. So it's very clear to me, anecdotally at least, that the majority of Catholics hadn't wanted nothing to do with communion in the hand, nor did they, uh, you know, embrace it as a legitimate option. They had to have it shoved down their throats. And I think we're seeing the same thing happening here. I, I had lunch a number of years ago with the uh, Bishop of Lake Charles, Louisiana. And uh, he, there's a priest there, Father, uh, Father Talentino, who is the rector for the traditional Catholics in the diocese. And it's kind of like 
I, I think what Pope Francis envisions here to have a priest in the diocese who's kind of responsible for the traditional communities. And of course, you know, being Louisiana, which was, you know, French and Catholic before there was such a thing as the United States, they have a bunch of absolutely magnificent, beautiful churches there. And, uh, and the traditional Latin mass is, you know, that's its natural territory, its natural habitat, if you will. And going to mass in the traditional, uh, traditional form there is the extraordinary form is an experience that I wish every Catholic could have. It's absolutely magnificent. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, and it's not like a time machine. It's not like going back in time. It's like going to heaven. Um, and that's just, I mean, that's a personal opinion, but there it is. Take it for what it's worth. But I had lunch with, with Father Talentino and with the bishop, and, and I asked the bishop, I said, you know, I, so many of the bishops around the world that I've met are not really on board with Samorum Pontificum. They're not really on board with the stuff. I mean, they allow it. But it seems like you've gone to great lengths to accommodate uh, the traditional Catholics here. And I think that's very laudable. And, and, you know, can you tell me why? And he said to me that it was clear to him that so many, you know, it's, it's a grassroots thing. He says so many Catholics want this. So many priests want it. He says it's clearly a movement of the Holy Spirit. And who am I to stand in the way of that? And that's the kind of, of humility, that's the kind of holiness that it would be, you know, you would pray that that all bishops would uh, would exemplify that kind of, uh, um, you know, obedience is the word. What's the word I'm looking for? The, the, that kind of uh, uh, acceptance of of the Holy Spirit. That, that they would just that they would acquiesce and, and and allow themselves to to be guided by the Spirit of God, which in fact is, you know, it's kind of their job. But but speaking of that. Really, the job of, of the bishop and the job of the pope um, is to guard the deposit of faith, to make sure that nothing is added or subtracted, you know, to, to, to keep that, to protect us, to keep the faith um, unchanged, because God doesn't change and because truth doesn't change. And so uh, when we come back here next week, we're going to talk about uh, the bishops and some of the uh, some of the ways that they have responded around the world, and there's been an awful lot of uh, articles and whatnot. So many people have said things uh, so much better than I can. We're going to share some of that with you as well, and then get back to the business of uh, no nonsense Catholic and move on uh, from this motu proprio and into uh, the rest of the third millennium, not in uh, uh, you know with despair or or fear, but in joyful hope. So. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us. Don't forget uh, the conference here on the 7th of August with Dr. Louis Sandoval uh, right here at the Sacred Heart Chapel. Go to vmpr.org. There's a pop-up tell you all about it. You can still register, still make it for that. I highly recommend it. And until next time, thanks for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family. In the night.